out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer, songwriter, musician, artist. It is the one and only George Henderson, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Um, He was in a band, he's been in a lot of bands, but um, one of the main ones was in the mid to late 80s or early 90s, The Puddle. He'd been in bands before then and he's now in another combo titled The New Existentialists. We've got some material that is coming out, probably on Bandcamp. But this is the interview and uh, just a few little words about this because um, it was 6 a.m., my time in the UK and uh, he was 12 hours ahead so I was a little bit tired and also the quality isn't brilliant it's not bad come on you know it's um it's sort of the other side of the world but there is a little bit of a sort of strange little rustling sound that um, has happened but I'm still pleased with it and um yes anyway so the per- it's not perfect but like I said it was it was a long distance Zoom call and um, frankly, Mr. Shankly, I was still in my pajamas. That's more the detail than you need. But anyway, at the end of this, I will play you a song from the new existentialist that you will love. But um, this is me in conversation with George. So after several minutes of casual but interesting chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. George, it's over to you. Oh, yes. And um, it's very much Bali too. So I was born in 1958. And um, I heard, um, well, I heard the Beatles, you know, coming out of a transistor radio when I was five or something. And, you know, I remember hearing it. She Loved You for the first time yeah. back then. And um, and I kind of was just kind of like a guest, like a Beatles fan, but not really seriously into music until, um, oh, I don't really know, but until I heard... Um, David Bowie, it would have probably been Starman right. on the radio. We saw it on TV, and that was just electrifying. And um, and around the same time, they started playing the early T-Rex singles, and um, it kind of all broke through at once where I was, which by that time, which was in the south, the southernmost part of New Zealand in a, t- in a city called Invercargill. Yes. And... Um, and yeah, and that was just like, you know, that was electrifying, but you don't really know what to make of it. And then one day, um, my brother and I went to the, or my family perhaps, went to the end of year concert at the town hall, which was just a variety act of all sorts of things. But one of the acts was a covers band that were playing, they started with Get It On, and then they did Moon Age Daydream, and then they did the Immigrant Song, and they just, you know, just all the great glam and metal tracks of the time and did them really well. It was a band called Watchdog. Right. And I, and I followed them around for years. You know, like, well, when I say followed small towns, so they only played one, one or two places. <laughs> but I kind of watched them develop. And after a while, they got into prog rock and wrote their own stuff. And, and, um, but just when I saw them, I'm like, I want to do this. You know, here is the thing I can do. You know, all these things, you know, I've seen other boys, you know, you know, fix cars or whatever. I'm like, nah, can't get, can't do that. You know, this is not, none of this is a path for glory to, for me. 
And then I saw this band and I was like, yeah, I can do this. This is my path in life. You know, this is my calling. And um, slowly, you know, tried to step into that role. Yeah. And were, you, did yeah. you, did, were your parents kind of, were they interested in, in kind of musical or bohemian or were they sort of people? Who... No. No, I mean, they were, they were pretty kind of like a bit well-reading, a bit sort of, um, well reason worldly um, because my my mother's father was a um, newspaper editor for the Scotsman magazine and the, the Scotsman newspaper, you know, a couple of the big papers in Scotland. Right. And so, um, yeah, yeah, there was a bit of a literary thing, but not a huge amount and certainly not much kind of, um, probably more understanding than most parents, but that's not saying, you know, not saying a lot. And, um, and um, but you know they've been. I mean they've been great since. But um, it's um, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not really from a background that's yeah. kind of musical. You didn't have any older brothers or sisters who shaped well, your musical career. Like I had a younger brother. I have a younger brother, Ian, who um, we got into a very competitive thing of trying to buy all the Uriah Heep albums and trying to be the first to have every single one. In that in that era, so um, so so and, and um, we've always enjoyed playing together. Like when we started playing music, he got yeah. he got a second hand drum kit, and I got a second hand amp, and that helps a lot. <laughs> helps a lot when you've got you know um, a team member like that. Yes, absolutely. Uriah Heep, God, that's quite a bizarre band to get fixated on. How, how yeah, yes, it's a. It's a weird one, and I think it's because if you look at the other Bogan bands of the time, what we call Bogan bands now, like Led Zepp, um, they, they're a bit more straightforward. Um, Uriah Heep are quite frilly. They've got their kind of the Tolkienish lyrics and the, and well, so Led Zepp, I imagine, but they're kind of more proggy. You know, there's, there's something about them that's perhaps a little bit more elaborate mm-hmm. and that kind of lent itself to... Um, to that and they and they had more albums. <laughs> they had more albums, and I don't know why it was them. I don't know why it was them, except that other people weren't at, maybe as into them as they were into, say, Deep Purple or or Led Zeppelin. Yes, I think they had very striking album covers. I seem to. Yes, you know, there's, Yes, there's a lot of a lot of allure there in the lyrics and the album covers. Yeah. It's funny because my brother, I've got an older brother who's seven years older, and I I thought he was wonderful. I mean, I was very young at the time, and he he got into the prog rock world. He was in that seventies period where it was just perfect of Yes and Genesis and Wishbone Ash, Barkley, James Harvest. But he also had Deep Purple and Black Sabbath albums, and um, yeah, and I I sort of was kind of amazed and and excited by this as a 10, 11 year old listening to Rick Wakeman and uh, King Arthur album, which I thought was. Or, you know, it was just brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just very taken. But yeah. then there was this kind of pop thing going on at the same time, you know, and obviously David Bowie was very exciting. And um, yeah, it was it was funny thinking about the 70s because I come from the, you know, the countryside in, in the UK. So we're very, we are so behind the times, literally backward, you know, culturally. So when punk came along, yes. you know, punk just didn't happen. But there was like... I suppose the community was much more about things like status quo, heavy melt, you know, the rock scene. The quo were the band, you know, you just didn't say anything about the quo without getting beaten up. So you, that was kind of <laughs> And even in the 80s, oh. when, when things like The Beat came along with 
that first album, you couldn't admit to liking it you know, on the school bus because mm. they would just, you know, think you're a yeah. you know, ponce and beat you up again. So, yeah. and a mod. So um, it was quite tribal in those days. So yes. Yeah, so when you yeah. were you were at that age where suddenly punk was there, did you did that come into your consciousness at all? Well, well, punk came along a little bit later. So punk was um. So I, I was sort of getting musically activated around 1974. 74 or 75, I formed a band with my brother Ian and with uh, my school friend Lindsay Maitland. And um, I bought a tape recorder and it was very much, you know, we'd, we'd read a bit about, I'd done um, fifth form music at school and Lindsay worked in a record shop and he knew all about avant-garde jazz and avant-garde classical and stuff. and and I'd read about it. And so we kind of mixed up a whole lot of ideas of, you know, we'd do Stooges covers, but we'd also do tape loops. Right. And um, and and use our, play our instruments any which way, you know, play the drumsticks on the bass or whatever, just to see what would happen, you know, just get as many possible sounds as possible and also be as kind of avant-garde as we could because that was kind of like, Part of it was we, you know, we were, yeah, you know, we we were admired people like Brian Eno, and we kind of wanted to be as avant-garde. We're basically like, have you read that Paul, Paul Morley book about classical music? Yes, I've just bought a copy of Sound Mind. I was listening to him recently talking, yeah. and I thought I must buy it. And uh, yes, I was kind of fascinated with it. Yeah. It's, yeah, because we were a bit like that. We we didn't know the difference, you know. We didn't know the difference between the classical world or the jazz world and the and and the and the glam world and the and the rock world. And um, we just thought it was all cool because it was all edgy, and um, we really didn't mind just kind of jamming it together. I mean, we could have like a pure little pop song, or we could have something that was meant to be unlistenable, and. Um, on the same bit of tape and play it to our friends and go, yeah, this is what we've been doing. And um, which is, yeah, <laughs> interesting looking back, you know, that, that all that stuff kind of bled together. And I've always, I've always kind of thrown that stuff into my songs, you know, yeah. it's like um, that I've learned in, yes. in high school music, yeah. Well, that's, that's fantastic. So when did you, when you mentioned you'd start getting instruments, when did you start sort of, learning to sort of really take it seriously and start sort of, yeah, taking it up a notch. Well, I mean, I always took it seriously. You know, I always took it seriously. I just, like, where we lived, there was really no chance of making money at it or getting an audience or, you know, apart from our friend, apart from our few, very few friends. Um, and so there was really no incentive to kind of... Um, to kind of, you know, write 10 songs and then rehearse them or something like that. There was no incentive for that. We could do what we wanted because we weren't going to make any more money or get any more girlfriends doing anything else, you know? Right. You yeah. know, there just wasn't the place for that yet. Yeah. Yeah. So then, sort of around that period, was, was this when you, was this the avant-garde punk band, the Amps and, and the Spies? Was this, was this well, No, this is... This is it. Well, this is earlier. When you're talking about the mid 70s, you're talking about the um, Crazy Olay and the Panthers, is what we were called in Invercargill. And then what happened is I left home, went to, I say went to university, but really I just had an excuse to leave home and drop out and um, 
flat and move around the country. And after about a year of aimlessness, I ended up in Wellington and um, ended up in Wellington um, on using heroin and selling it and sold some to somebody who was in a punk band. And it was like, oh, you're in a punk band. Oh, do you know how to play music? Yeah. Do you want to play music? Yeah. And so we um, ended up, um, so I ended up in a punk band. And then, um, and, and I was still like tinkering around with music, but I kind of, it was kind of like one of those periods where it wasn't the biggest thing in my life. And then, um, and then suddenly I was in a punk band and I had, um, um, was learning some songs and, and, but we were a weird kind of punk band. So that would have been the amps. And we were already a weird kind of punk band because we did family play. Right. And we did, um, so as well as a couple of, you know, sort of obligatory reggae songs and a few originals, but we were always kind of looking back to psychedelia as being, because punk for me is like, I really wanted to be psychedelic. You know, I really wanted to be, you know, like Sid Barrett was my idol. Right. And, but it was just too late in history for that to happen for me. You know, it was never going to be another summer of 67. So summer of 77 comes along. And it's quite a different thing, but I can see how it fits. You know, I'm one, I, I guess I would identify with some of the people who kind of combined the two, like Mark Perry and um, people like that, um, that where, where you can see how it fits with the old psych world, you know, which is so, so we always were more eclectic than, um, than just being a punk band. Did, did Dan Tracy... Did that in, did did he was he like he came along a bit later didn't he I just wondered if you thought oh there's somebody else who's got a slightly similar idea to me yeah well that's a little bit later after the sort of exact yeah. punk time we started to hear the rough trade singles and we heard um especially uh, I think desperate bicycles right. was one that we thought yeah that's kind of like yeah we can do that um and um and a few of those things um and it's it's interesting. So look, in New York, around the same time, you know, there was that kind of the explosion of, you know, CBGBs and Max's Kansas City. And obviously, you know, we all know the story of their kind of the heroin, you know, capital, no, not capital, but, you know, there was a wash with drugs and, and um, a bit of a CBC. So what was Wellington in uh, New Zealand like at this stage? Yes, it was a seedy scene. There was lots of, the, the scene was kind of like, there was hard drugs, but there was like not a lot of them. And they were running out so that the supply was drying up because we're at the end of the world here. So we actually don't get, it's only recently we started getting like proper drug epidemics. We can just like have a taste of it and get a bit distracted by it, but it's, it's not really going to hang around enough. And, and, and um, it was actually, it was actually really hard getting drugs and being, you know, just being a druggie in those days. It was actually, yes. um, yeah, you know, York, you... it sounded like you know, it sounded like the authorities. I'm not sure if this is completely true, but you know, it sounded like it was almost being helped by the. You know, yeah, the... I've heard that. I've heard that rumor, and it's probably true. Who knows? Yeah, it but um, it also, certainly wasn't like. And so, also, I, I spoke to quite a few people from that scene, and it was so cheap. It was almost like one well, is kind of cheaper than anything else. So, yes, market forces and all that. So, it, Wellington, it had a scene, but it was pretty small or difficult to get hold of. Yeah, yeah, and we, we, there was a scene. It's, it's, it's kind of quite quite gritty, you know, like you you know sex workers and um, and drug dealers, you know, that's kind of the milieu. And, um, and, and when I went to other cities, it was different. It was like, you'd, you'd be 
you know, hobnobbing with art students and the like, um, or, you know, or, you know, kind of academics even. And, um, but Wellington was quite different. It was more of a kind of a street scene. It was like a, you know, you, you, were, you were in a Louis Reed song, basically, yeah. Yeah, so oh, that's interesting. I mean, mostly it's, it's, you know, it's more smoking, isn't it, in cannabis, rather than something that goes from that to, wow, that's, you've gone straight to the, you know, the hard stuff. So weird, <laughs> oh, like, well, I've skipped a bit of that story, but yeah, I've skipped <laughs> a bit of that story, but there was some. Um, right, so you yeah. did have Well, you see, well, see, you started off, this, you started off with cannabis, which I think was soaked in opiates. It was all imported from Southeast Asia, and it was actually an advert for heroin probably but um it was good but it, that dried up first right and then all there was was heroin and then that dried up um and um yeah yeah so so there was that phase definitely yeah was definitely. my god you're william did you get into william burroughs and naked lunch as well oh yeah all that all that william burroughs big influence on us big you know big bad influence on on me and my peers yeah oh Oh dear me! This is yeah, exciting <laughs> stuff. Is oh, well, <laughs> but yeah. So the so your first that first band from Wellington was the Amps and the Spies. Was this true? Have yes, the Amp, the Amps is the is you know the one of the names that the punk band I was in settled on for a while, and the lineup of that kept changing. And then at one stage it just sort of split into two bands, and one one of which became Shoes This High, who continue to be a more kind of straightforward punk band, but they were also beef heart influenced and they got kind of more into a beef heart free jazz thing as they evolved. Yeah. And then um, the other the other half of the band was the Spies and the Spies was myself, Susan Ellis, um, Mark Thomas um, and um, Christopher Plummer. And, um, and Mark and Susan and I all wrote songs and kind of kind of learnt to write songs together in a way. Like I, these are the sort of people I've played with are the people I've learnt learnt off. And they were both talented songwriters. And we we had we often didn't have a drummer. Like Chris was our drummer, but we often didn't have a drummer. We did because he also drummed with shoes this high. So we did a lot of our stuff with um oh, oh we had oh sorry, Richard Sedgett was the bass player. So we had um we so we a, a lot of our music that we ended up recording is like keyboards, guitar and bass and and no no drum kit, you know, it's it's kind of um so the rhythms are all set up on the on the keyboard instruments, I guess. And um and so and so that gave us quite a different sound for that time too. Yeah, my God. That's, that, yeah, that must have been quite curious actually. Because I know in the eighties we had the Copto twins who obviously went for much more quite a lot of more of a sonic sort of soundscape with uh, tape loops yeah. and um, heavy feedback and obviously Liz is yeah. amazing vocal. So then when that when that happened and that came through, you then relocated to was it Christchurch? Um so so yes the spies recorded an album under um we recorded an album and then we got arrested by the police who took the album off us and it wasn't gave it that back bad, to us later. <laughs> well, we'd stolen some of the equipment we used to make oh, it. You okay. see, that was the thing. So there was this whole kind of underground. We were like this underground guerrilla commune. You know, we thought we were like the bad and mind hop of the music oh, scene. Fantastic. You know, liberating yeah. the music from the man, liberating the music from the man. So we made this album. But all, and but um, in this case, it was more of musical equipment you were liberated. 
Yes, yes, oh, yes, nice. and um, and yes, recording equipment, and um, we because mm-hmm. in those days you just you just didn't really consider getting into the studio. The studios were owned by, um, you know, big business, and and um, and even if you could afford to go in them, the people running them wouldn't understand you, and you wouldn't get what you wanted by going in there. So. Um, anyway, we did it that way, and we ended up recording that many years later, like a few years ago, got put out. I think on Silkbreeze, I think, called the Battle of Bosworth Terrace. Um, and so that stuff eventually saw the light of day. Those recordings or a sample so you of kept, them. You kept the um, master tape on that, and yeah, well, someone kept it. Someone found it years later. Fantastic. And, and what do you think us, when think. you listen to it, sort of? 40 years later were you pleased with it yeah yeah i was i was um it's got a it's got an amazing sound rich is playing a fretless bass and so it's you know just perversely decided that he was going to be the fretless bass player of new zealand and so and so it's got this lovely kind of rubbery rubbery sound to it that, that you know bounces along and um you've got susan's like pure pure voice and um and um yeah, it's um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm quite happy with it. So um, then, I mean, what happened with the the arrest? Did you just all get prosecuted and, and yeah, we got pro- we got we got prosecuted. We went to court. We went. We got punished. We had to do um, you know, like chop down weeds for like six months every all weekend, every weekend. Right. Which is the kind of one of the punishments they had back in those days. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's all big life experience for, for, you know, somebody like me who wasn't going to go through that kind of thing just naturally, you know. Was... So that, that was obviously the end of that band. Then what happened after the Well, story? no, that, well, that was the end of that band, but we fled to, um, all the perpetrators fled to Christchurch where, because we'd met this, we'd met this guy, um, Bill Vosberg from Christchurch, this Kid, he was quite young at the time, he might have been 17 or something, and he was just like, you know, he's like genius and kind of um, talked a good talk. And we're like, yeah, we want to come and come and you know be part of your band, or you know, be you know. And so we went down to Christchurch where he had a band called The Perfect Strangers, and we um, ended up um, sort of living with them, you know, sharing a house with them, and. Um, recording with them and um mostly doing our own stuff but we would kind of leak onto each other's recordings and things you know like whoever was whoever was in the room could play along kind of thing and we made material we recorded a whole lot of stuff and some of that came out on a record recently i think it's space case maybe space case and Bada Bing or matador or something and it's um um but space case it's called oven O-U-T-H-E-R-N. And so that stuff got released recently. But it would have been going around the country on cassettes and people people, people who cared about that sort of, people who relished strangeness would have, would have heard it before then. But, but all this stuff has come out, well, some of it anyway, this century. Fantastic. Then, and, and, and after this period, then, then ha- what does what does the next musical moment happen? What what happens with your next musical moment? Well, now you're talking about 1981 um, and 82. It's the years in Christchurch, and um, 
1981, I think um, we also recorded with the Perfect Strangers. We made a single back then. So we put out a seven-inch record, seven-inch 33 record with one side each of about seven minutes of music each of, of the two bands. And that um, is the first kind of official release right. Um, right. that I was involved in. That's that's exciting because, like at this stage in the in the UK, you know, we've had that period of you know Thatcher gets in seventy nine, and then you know the early eighties is kind of quite grim in the UK. Really, there's a huge amount of unemployment, and and there's the Falkland War. There's also the Green and the Common Peace thing with the anti nuclear world, and uh, the miners' strike, and then a few years later, there's more sort of unrest, and yes. Yeah, there's the there's the kind of red wedge movement. So so at this stage, what's the sort of political landscape like in, in New Zealand? Um, there's a Springbok tour, which was a huge moment in New Zealand because the government invited the South African rugby team in, and the people of New Zealand were mad keen on rugby and just wanted to see the games and the kind of the younger generation or the kind of the um. I suppose what you would call the left today, although we didn't use terms like that then really, um, were um, um, against it. So the the Anne Band, which was the name of, of the band, my band then, went, we flew to Wellington to um, play a Rock Against Racism gig on the eve of the Springbok game there, and then went out on the streets and joined the protest the next day. So that's... Um, that's really the, um, the 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 apex of. Oh my God! You just froze. Don't freeze. Not stop, but seriously disrupted. There was a fair bit of violence, and it sort of made the country look at itself, and it, the country kind of slowly changed a bit after that. Um, Excellent. Yes. Well, we like a bit. Of, we like a protest, don't we? Especially in that period. Well, probably now, really. But um, yes, the um, our apartheid world of South Africa was was quite the thing, really, because also mm. Thatcher really loved, you know, th this idea of trade and thought it was all complete nonsense, and we yeah. could just get on with it, really. And that's well, why we really hated Queen in the eighties with a passion, because uh, they played South <laughs> yeah. Sun City, didn't they? So um, that was just one of because you suddenly got these pop stars, rock stars, who decided they wanted to still play Sun City, and it was all, you know. The apartheid well, the, world, so um, it was kind of quite an edgy little time. People don't mention that about Queen and Freddie Mercury so much now. No, yeah, it's not, it's not so well known, but... Yeah, um, there you go. So then, after... So that was the, the amps. You said that you, you were sort of doing your sort of protest against the... Uh, the no, no, this is the end band. The end band by this stage. Uh, it just gets very, it's very confusing, I know. Oh, <laughs> There's not going to be too many names. There's only going to be a few name changes from now on. Right. The and band. The spy, um, the spy, and then the and band, yes. The and band, yes. yes. so that's the early 80s for you. And then what happens after that? Is, is this when... Um, um, well, at this point... Um, kind of exhausted what we were doing and exhausted ourselves and we you know we're living in kind of in squats and you know using bad drugs and um just kind of um 
running, I kind of ran out of steam. And um, um, Susan and I went off to Dunedin where we had a child and I kind of st would still record music and like have ideas about it, but I kind of like lost my ambition. I kind of like, um, you know, didn't re wasn't really into it, shall we say. And then something happened. I was in Dunedin late at night. It would have been 80, 83 maybe, listening to the radio. And I heard um, the Chills song, Satin Gold, of right. the very first recording they did. And I was like, what? This, this sounds like Sid Barrett and it's being played on the radio oh my god there's hope for me yet so I started going into town and went to see Chills Verlaine's concerts and things like that and some of them were pretty scrappy and I was like what is this the next big thing but some of them you know the Chills were really impressive and so I'm like okay I'm going to do this <laughs> get the band together again and wrote a bunch of songs and um, we gathered together songs and started kind of demoing them and came up with the you know the first puddle set and um and luckily you know got to was getting to know people in the in that scene including uh ross jackson who became my bass player and ross jackson wasn't a muso then like i taught him how to play the bass um but um he was friends you know he'd gone to school with all these people in the bands and so he knew peter gutteridge and he knew Leslie Paris and um, from Luke Blue Go Purple. And so I was able to get Leslie as a drummer, and she's an amazing drummer. So that was a, a real coup, and um, get um, Peter in the band as a keyboard player, and um, start kind of had Shane Carter on drums at one of our first gigs. And so I was able to. Um, get a start with, with, with the puddle and. Um, uh, eventually kind of get good enough to make a recording and have that put out by Flying Nun, which was um, really, really lucky because um, I really think that's, you know, because Leslie was in the band and Roger respected Leslie rather than because of any kind of potential that, you know, our music had necessarily, but um, it's, um, yeah. Because Lin Lindsay brings, you know, which is quite interesting, the um yes french horn she brings a sort of a slightly oh more... oh this is it okay so that's leslie's on the drums Lindsay is my old friend from invercargill he was he's the, my old friend from crazy lane the panthers and he comes in on the french horn um as well and um and uh leslie's friend norma o'malley also comes in on the flute and so um we have like a bit of a wind section or a brass section i don't know yes Flute, brass, or wind. Anyway, we, yeah, yeah, so we have, we, so we, yeah, so again, we have this avant garde thing. Which is, yeah, which is quite Baroque, really, isn't it? People, I know there's a few bands, there was, there was one called Shelly Ann Orphan who, who sort of had a slightly sort of classical vibe to them. And I think there's another band as well who I interviewed recently who also incorporated certain instruments which were unusual. Because for us, you know, during that period, 83 was a massive year because suddenly the Smiths appear and sort of for five years yeah. we have the Smiths on our radar and within that I know on one level we had the the mainstream charts that had that Trevor Horn production you know there was ABC Frankie Goes to Hollywood then we had Jade Duran Duran's Band Old Bally so that was kind of one soundtrack the other side was yeah. 
people like the Smiths, there was everything but the girl, the Cockberry twins, the Cure, the Colt, you know, so there was all that kind of scene. Did, were you picking up on that kind of sudden 80s kind of vibe that was... was um, yes, I was he heavily into the Smiths um, and heavily into Micro Disney. They were my, um, sort of probably my biggest love in that period. Who was the um, last one? I missed that. My, micro Disney. Oh, Micro, micro Disney. Disney. Yes, Carl yeah. Cochran and Sean O'Hagan's band. Yeah. Uh, who had a bit of a, they had a bit of success in New Zealand, I think. They kind of sold, their records are in the shops here, which was unusual in itself. Yes, absolutely. All the way from the Southern Ireland. Yeah, I know. Carl Cochran, he died recently, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. But then, yeah, so your first, was the first album called Pop Lib? Was this the one? Yes. A mini album, which was out there. Right. So how was the band functioning at this stage? Are you, were you able to do it as a full-time, you know, occupation? Or were you having to have a side hustle? Or were you just living in amazing poverty to keep it going? Yeah, I was living in amazing poverty, of course. Um, I, was, I, was, I would be on the dole and, um, you know, spending my pay on drugs and whatever what have you and um uh but it didn't cost much to live in Dunedin in those days it was um it, it, it was fairly easy and and the, you know the making money at it I don't know it's I don't know how you could you know if you toured the whole country you'd only be playing six places you know it's and they wouldn't want to see you too often so um yeah did you at that stage, because there's quite a lot of bands I've interviewed from sort of Australia and New Zealand who then have that period where they all come and relocate to London or, yeah, mostly London, living in Squatland and then trying to get, get their kind of act together. Did, did that sort of happen with you at all? Did that sort of idea no, cross your mind? No, no um, I guess it would have. Like, I just wanted to have, like, I thought I've written these songs that, you know, should go down well in Britain. I thought we should be a hit there. Then I might have gone over. You know, I wasn't gonna. I wasn't gonna go over there and try and make it there. That would be ridiculous. I was, you know, I was just gonna make the best music I could um, where I was, and and sort of nudge people like send it to Britain. That's kind of where it belongs, and that's kind of why it's so gratifying being on your show nowadays. It's why it's like. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of like, you know, I grew up reading The Enemy and, you know, I grew up kind of with the same influences you have. And I always thought that's where that's where this belongs, you know, not so much America. And it seemed like it was always kind of getting pointed in the wrong direction or whatever and kind of wasn't kind of... Um, I kind of figured that the market for my music would be in the place that kind of bred and influenced it, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> did John Peel pick up on it at all? Was that, did you have any luck on that front or was it, did it just... I don't think so, but it's possible. It's possible and it's possible that he did and I just don't remember it. But yeah, I don't think, I don't think we had... Um, because because, because the, thing about, the thing about Flying Nun Records is they came out like, if you were a... a um, you know, like a, a second or third string band like we were, your records would come out like five years after you recorded them. Right. There'd be like huge queues at the pressing plant and, um, you know, they'd repress something more popular before they'd get around to repressing whatever you'd done. And, um, and you know, we never, we never did a proper expensive studio thing either. You know, we never kind of 
we only did we just did things on the fly using um like pop was recorded with the equipment that the chills were using to record a live gig and we would this port band and we said oh can you record us too and then we took the tape and took it to another little studio and did some overdubs on it and that's kind of got a you know got an album on the cheek that way yeah because the next two releases are they both because just well there's live at the live in the palm of your hand that's a cassette which is and then you do live at the teddy bear club which is on flying which is, around. Which is so, the same music that was live at the palm of your hand was a sort of a raw cassette version of something that was then mixed down and made a little bit more um sort of pepped up a little bit for LP release. Yeah. It's the same, it is the same, some of the same songs though. And then Flying Nun finally gave us a little bit of money to record Into the Moon, like about $800 to do it on a four track. Because that release, I mean, by then, had you also lost Lindsay at this stage? Yes, yes, Lindsay died about 1987. he overdosed about 1987 and so and around about that time I think Leslie and Norma would have left the band because we were just the, 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 the males that were left in the band were just too messy by that stage but and they were always quite professional and quite you know clean clean living and um and, and um yeah and 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 so we we went off with a series of drummers who who um um, did Peter leave as different. well? And Peter left. Peter left. Um, yeah, Peter left because Peter wanted to do sonic stuff. You know, Peter was getting more and more into effects pedals and the tone of his guitar and so forth. And we just, I just never cared about that kind of thing. I was kind of like the songs of thing, you know, not sound. And um, and Peter, Pete did a few of his originals with us. Um, but he, um, he, you know, there are recordings of him playing some of his songs with, with the puddle, but he um, was starting up Snapper in that period. I mean, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what comes before what, you know, but he was starting up Snapper and eventually that became his own thing. And, and I know he struggled with kind of my approach to sound as he got more of a sonic purist. Yes. And, um, and so... And so then you have, yeah, you have Snapper. Yeah. But look, then I know around that period, you know, for us, you know, there's kind of a, you know, quite a big change because the Smiths break up, who had been a religious, religious kind of experience for five years. So it always feels a bit of a, like a, a bit of a surprise, especially when you're young. Now, now we wouldn't care about mm. it at all. But then the music kind of landscape changes because we had that kind of the, the dance scene started to appear with people, yeah, I suppose. Ecstasy came along. I think Ecstasy played quite a big part. So suddenly, all the bands that were going to be guitar-based needed to sort of bring in that sort of vibe, which was captured by people like this. Uh, I suppose um, oh, the Stone Roses, Primal Scream, Happy Mondays, even the Soup Dragons managed it. And then we had the Orb, and then there was that kind of whole world that started to the cult of the DJ. But then in Seattle, there was the grunge scene. Did any of that kind of start to? change or influence you at this stage? Yes, yes. So what happened was um, around 90, around late 90, 91, I was so messed up on drugs and alcohol that I ended up in jail. 
And that straightened me up a bit. And when I came out of jail, I was kind of like much more focused on actually trying to have some kind of commercial success in music or just trying to have some sort of consistency. And um, I got together a band that kind of were a bit funky and I was influenced. I hadn't taken ecstasy. We didn't get ecstasy for a long time and I was in those states to take it anyway. But um, I was very influenced by the Happy Mondays particularly at the time, because of, you know, just because of that whole loose kind of, um, that loose rhythmic thing, seemed like something I could do, like it wasn't like that into, um, you know, any sort of complicated style of funk or anything, but just loosening things up a bit, being a bit baggy, just made sense. And um, I also just kind of liked the stuff they sung about, you know, I liked the way that rap I like the way that rap was feeding back into rock and making it more confessional and making it like you could talk about more things. Um, you know, you could talk about kind of like the stuff of your life, you know, the drugs you were taking, the sex you were having or whatever. You know, it's kind of like, I, I, I just kind of like, like that kind of opening up songwriting. So, um, uh, so we did become more of a dance band and it's not a huge shift from what we were doing it's just a it's a very subtle thing but it works and um and so we started getting um getting work at the um sort of university dances and things like that we started being getting quite regular gigs where we had big audiences that we you know um which was which was the whole idea <laughs> it was the whole plan like it was working you know it was, it was really working and and we made an album. We made a single that Flying Nun put out, which was Thursday and Too Hot to Be Cool. And we made an album called Songs for Emily Valentine, which is named after a character on Beverly Hills 90210. So this is that whole, you know, we were, or I was very, and we were very pop cultural aware. Like you say, like all these trends were not passing us by. Um, but we, we sort of got to pick and choose them, I guess, and, um, and mix them up. And, um, but that album never got released by Flying Nun. We released it later. We released it later um, on Power Tool Records in Auckland. Yes, did, um, just and it's available now. Because you did Into the Moon, and that was, you, were, you know, obviously your post-prison period. So um, you must have had... Did that... Because um, often people have a bit of a struggle to sort of think of what to write about on their second or third albums because they had their whole life to do the first album. How did, how did your period in prison... I mean, was it for... Was it months or years for this period? It was only about four months. Right. Um, and, um, but um, Into the Moon was actually done before that. So this is the whole Flying Nun time lag thing. Is it came out later, but it was done and dusted by the time I was in jail. And um, how do you, yeah, what you're saying is about, I, I've never had that problem because I've just like, I guess I've never like written the songs for albums or anything like that. I've just kind of written the songs and gathered them up as I go. And um, this, and I've always been getting better at songwriting and able to put more things into my songs because I was never I was never like a natural songwriter at first. I learned off the people I was around, people yeah. like Susan Ellis, Mark Thomas, Phil Bosberg. Um, I kind of like sort of showed me how to do it as I went along. So um, I've, I've kind of um, 
you know, I just like write lots of songs, like write lots of songs. Um, but well, what, certainly, well, yeah. I was going to say, were you surprised that um, songs for Emily Valentine? What What was the reason that they didn't take put that out then and waited until two thousand and five for it to um, reappear or appear? Yeah, because it was a it was a, a good quality studio recording finally, um, and we had. Um, Celia Mancini singing on it, who's like one of the greats of New Zealand rock and roll, doing all the back, lots of backing vocals on it, and the band was really tight. And um, but I think Flying Nun at that stage had kind of lost its way. It had kind of like, I mean, the album days were over. We were moving into the CD era. There was um, a lot of money around, or the lure of lots of money from America, um, and. It was a kind of a point where the um, they kind of went a bit big, big business or whatever, and um, you know ended up sort of tripping up. It's in the book. I don't really understand. I don't really understand it, but you could see at the time that it was kind of like um, what they used to do. They weren't going to do anymore. You know. Yes. <clears throat> well, I think the '90s got a bit yeah because I think people had replaced all their vinyl records with CDs, and also CDs were cheap to manufacture, but they sold them at quite a high price. So I think there was a sort of a, a kind of glory period during the 90s, wasn't it, of cocaine and champagne that was kind of flowing. People reminisce about that yeah. period. Yes, well. it never flowed our way, but you could see it was like flooding. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was flowing in some places, yeah. Was, yes, there were some people who were in, indulging a lot. Yeah, so were you, was that the kind of end of the band when, when the album didn't get sort of released? It's hard to say, like the band ended because I got sick, really. I mean, that's the main thing is I had hepatitis C and I eventually became too, just too sick and tired to, you know, really sort of care or enough or get it together enough to do a good performance. But in the meantime, I did have another band called Mink. And Mink, now you're talking about the dance scene and the orb and kind of moving into um, house music, I suppose. And I got together with a guy called... Brian Spittle, who um, had sequences and drum machines and stuff and wanted to take things in a, um, a kind of a more tech direction. And I liked that idea at the time and I still like it. And um, Brian and I got together and did a couple of demos. And then he thought, well, why don't we expand this into a band? And he got together a whole lot of musicians and singers and made and we, and we created this band called Mink, which was kind of a musical collective um, with um, quite a few songwriters. So there's probably about four of my songs on each of the two albums. Right. Um, and, and we had a bit of success as Mink insofar as, and also one of the things that Brian did is he made one of the very first interactive CDs. I think only David Bowie beat him to it. And I think his might've had features that Bowie's didn't have. So it's kind of a CD-ROM kind of thing where you can play videos off the CD that you bought the music on. And this is in this is in the early 90s. Um, yes. Almost exactly around the time Bowie did the same thing. But this is it's actually one of the, you know, one of the first, if not the first, interactive CDs, interactive music CDs. God, but yes, I remember the CD-ROM. That was going to be such a part of our lives. And then it... I think yeah. disappeared, isn't it? It's really strange. Yeah. 
Yes, yeah, yes, interactive CD. We were very yeah, yeah. You put the CD into your computer and you into the, you know, into your actual computer and and play it, and, and it would come up with these like little things you could click on. You could move the mouse on and click, and it would take you to some kind of um um odd track or some film of a live gig or just some film we shot on tour or something like that. Yes, that's right. I think there was even idea that you could remix it yourself. I'm not sure if that ever really happened, yeah. actually. So Mink did Which really is, uh, well, didn't it? You, you, I see you, you did sort of quite a few albums. You followed it up. The first one, then the second one, For My Mink, came out 76. Yeah. Uh, 96. That be... So during that period, did, your, did, your, did you manage to sort of tidy your health up or was that still kind of always an ongoing? Yeah, my health was still kind of like, like was still getting worse. And I tidied my health up after a period of probably not playing any gigs or just playing a few and different ones. Um, I tidied my health up. 2003 was just like, I was, you know, like, really sick and basically dying and somebody said oh why don't you come and research hep c for us we've got a spare computer and i just thought well why don't i just go to the med school library and just look up just look up some medical textbooks and just see see if i can find anything and i just read these medical textbooks and just read the chapter on the liver and it just had these experiments about nutrition about how what you know what deficiencies will cause liver to fail and i just thought well if i take the thing they're talking about here if i eat more protein i take some selenium and vitamin e and and um, take the antidote to paracetamol, which is N-acetylcysteine, because paracetamol destroys the liver. So just like all the things that were mentioned here as you know, being liver protective things. So I just buy these supplements and just try them. And after a couple of weeks, I started to feel like a lot better. And then I thought, oh, I can keep doing this. I can just keep getting better. And the next couple of years, I just kept experimenting with supplements and dietary change until I was like good as new, basically. You know, I. By the time the drugs to treat hep C became available, I took them and cleared the virus and it didn't make any difference to my health because I was already in a good enough place that I didn't notice getting rid of the virus. Um, so so that's, that's what changed my life. And during that, and so I got the band together, got the band together with a new lineup with, uh, with Ross Jackson back on bass, but with um, Hesh, on drums and um, we um, we played a gig and this lady came up to me and said, hey, remember me? And she was someone I'd known many years before and loved being and I saw her and just like, well, you're beautiful and want to get back with you. And so we did. And so I moved up to Auckland to be with her. And um, in the meantime, um, in the meantime, one of our old sax players got in touch with us and said, oh, I want to record an album. I've always remembered you, George. Like, you know, I want to record you. And I'm like, well, it just so happens. I'm fitting, working again. I've got a band. Yes. And um, so we recorded the album Playboys in the Bush, which took a while to finish and come out. It wasn't the first new puddle record that came out. So we did... Um, uh, and then I did some albums with my brother, with Ian on drums, and in his studio, which are No Love, No Hate, and um, The Shakespeare Monkey, and um, and there's another puzzle album, Secret Holiday Victory Blues, that we did a bit later, and um, yeah, that so was, that was... So, so basically, you, you sort of managed to sort of save your liver, get yourself healthy, and then you had this kind of amazing four albums. 
in in sort of five years. You did No Love, No Hate, The Shakespeare Monkey, Playboys in the Bush, and Secret Holiday and Victory Blues, all in a very short yes. period of time. So were you having a was this was was your health and your mind, was it just much more focused at this point? Yeah, that and um yeah, sort of new love and um and um was um yeah, everything was just, everything was really focused. I'm like, yeah, I can do all these things that have taken me my whole life and I've mucked up my whole life, you know, done badly. I can do them well now. You know, I can, I can focus on them and kind of have the stamina and, and, and um, the consistency to do. Um, I mean, we'd done sort of really coherent things before, like Emily Ballantyne's a very coherent recording, but this is sort of going back into that groove of like, yes, we'll turn up in the studio and we'll lay down the tracks and it'll, you know, it'll, we'll do what we intend to do and make it as good as possible. And we, yeah, managed to do that four times. And um, did you, because all these were out on um, Fish Rider Records. This is your brother's yeah. label, isn't it? Yes, yes. So Ian has started up a label in Dunedin by this time and he started recording um, first of all, the band that he was in, the Dark Beaks, and then he started recording some of the younger bands around town. Um, and for a while, become you know, a bit of an impresario of a new Dunedin scene, sort of like you know Alan McGee type character or, or what have you, you know. And um, <clears throat> and he's had this whole success, you know, on his own, not counting what he's done with me. Yes. Yeah. That's amazing. God, that's yeah. good. But then <clears throat> at the end of like 2012, does the band keep going or have you then by then taken another well, detour? Yes. But by 2012, I've kind of adjusted to the fact that I'm living in I'm living in Auckland and the music I'm doing involves going to going to the other end of the country and rehearsing people that I only see every six months and then um you know, touring or recording or whatever, and it, wouldn't wouldn't it be nice to have a band at home? Yes. And um, and so I still go down there and play with the puddle from time to time. I played um, in June, I think, with um, with Ian and some of the members of my band from Auckland. So I, and 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 last year I played a gig with the, the full puddle down there. But um, I um. It just sort of makes more sense to me to have a band in my hometown now that I've been living in Auckland for um, uh, 17 years. Oh, 17 years. So I finally adapted to the, to the shift. It took me long enough. Um, and I got met up with some musicians because it is harder to meet musicians here. And then even you can just walk down the road, you bump into a musician who's in a band that plays the kind of music you play. You know, it's like not, it, it's, it's still like that now. It's not hard mm. to make a band, not, not hard to make a band in Dunedin. In Auckland, everybody's busy. You know, the price, cost of living here is high and everybody's very spread out. And the music scene is far more um, scattered and sort of, fragmented into genres and what have you um and, and you know cliques and so on and um but i i met these guys ned the drummer and jamie who was the bass player and we started playing and recording re rehearsing and eventually made a record um with uh bob frisbee which is called poetry is left so we recorded that about 2014 2015 it took a while to get out because um, Bob 
is one of these producers that can have trouble finishing things and letting go of them, but it, it's, it's there now on the internet. It sounds good. And then we made another album um, during lockdown. Well, not during lockdown, but before lockdown. So as this young friend of ours, or friend of our kids, really, which is how we kind of get new musicians these days, um, is um, Frey Frey. It's like a producer who does, um, what would you call it? I don't know what they call techno today, but whatever they call it, he does that sort of thing, remix stuff. And um, yeah. and he, um, we, we decided to make it with him and started off just recording some of our practices just for just to, just to see, you know, just to see what it would sound like. And then COVID hit and the lockdowns hit. And I thought, oh, we should, I want to do something. <laughs> you know, here I am bottled up at home and, you know, full of inspiration, smoking bucky bongs every day, perfect creative energy, perfect creative space and time. But you can't actually have a you can't actually have get together to record. Yeah. So I'm like, uh, so I'm like, hey, hey, Frey, uh, what what have you got of ours that you recorded? And he's like, oh, I've got these tracks and these tracks, and he sent them to me. I'm like, okay, I like that one. I like that one because you know they're just instrumental tracks of the band, um, not particularly balanced or anything. And I'm like, yeah, if that one, if I record a guitar on that one, if I do this on that one. And eventually, I think the lockdown eased off or something, and I could actually go and visit him. And then I went to visit him and recorded um, overdubs to finish the songs, and um, did a couple of other songs at his place. And then we put that out as didn't have time. Um, and um, yeah, um, that actually came up before Poetry is Theft. Yeah, is this is this the band or the collective called the New Existentialists? That's right. Yes, that's right. We're called the New Existentialists. Right. Poetry is theft was out. Yeah, like last year, and before that, didn't have time. Was that a kind of collection of material that you recorded before lockdown? Yes. Yeah, that's sort of a before and around lockdown recordings. Yes. The first lockdown. God, that's amazing. So now. With your latest bits, is this um, recording still as that as that band, but called "I Don't Need the Light"? Last days of the internet. Are, are these? Is this yes. kind of new material that's coming out? Yes. I so myself, this is new material. No, this is as as the new existentialist, and it's um. Uh, uh, sorry, it's a bit confusing because when I put all this stuff on Spotify or Bandcamp, I've only got one account, so I just call it all the new existentialist. But I sometimes put my solo stuff there as well. And I try and differentiate it in the name, but I know it's confusing for people. But what the heck, you know? It's like it's, it's compared with you know compared with my career in the past, this is nothing, people. Um, and <laughs> and um, but anyway, um, so the lineups changed a wee bit because we got so uh, uh, we always had a synth player. So because it was part of like I wanted the I wanted the um, new existentialist sound to be different from the puzzle sound. To kind of move away from the kind of the puddles a bit loungy. It's a little bit, um, it's a little bit intentionally kind of relaxed and groovy and smooth in places, or has been for a while. And I wanted to make a band that was a bit more sort of freak beat sound, a little bit more kind of noise in the mix. And um, so I bought a fuzz pedal for the first time ever, and I um, 
got a synth player. Um, I've had synth players, and um, originally Chris Hazelwood from um, King Loser, the same band as Celia Mancini was in, and um, and then um, lately Dwayne Zarakop, who was also in King Loser, and um, and the, synth, the idea of the synth player is just one of these synth players that plays like random synth stuff, like like um, Alan Ravenstein from um, Perubu or Eno or um, the guy from Armand Duel too, who are another my favourite bands. Um, these are synth players who didn't try to play tunes. They yes. just made noises. And um, so that's kind of the effect I've wanted. And, and, and um, then my friend... Um, Andrew Moore was um, really keen to play, and so we ended up with Andrew playing bass and um, Jamie moving to lead guitar. It was the first time I've had a lead guitarist in my band, because I've always been the lead guitarist. But now I'm like, I'll play the solos I want. Jamie can play the, the solos where I want to, you know, concentrate on my singing in there, and it works really well. It's really, you know, he's really good. He's really good and different and it blends together really well. Um, so this band went into Matthew Heine's studio um, and Matthew Heine is a real muso's muso. He's like got, you know, he's better than all of us put together. <laughs> and so I'm, luckily he plays on the record too. And um, and yeah, it's got a cool sound. We did five songs and um, yeah. And the, the, and the song, Last Days of the Internet, is a title song. And I would say this is kind of like another lockdown song because it's, right. it's coming from being in the lockdown and being on the internet and just going, why are there no fucking songs about the internet? Like, this is like a country that we live in and it doesn't have its own art. You know? I mean, <laughs> I know now that it does. Like, I've since discovered that actually, yes, it does have its own art. It's just like people like me and, you know, you know like, like, we're not aware of this. You turn on the TV and you watch. I'd watch movies like I spent a lot of time watching movies in lockdown, and um, I'd be like, "Why aren't these people wearing masks? Why aren't these people washing their hands? Why aren't they in lockdown? You know, like, and why aren't they on their phones all the time? Are these movies? Are they even making movies about real people anymore? Do they make TV programs about real people anymore? You know, because why is no one on their phones? Why is no one wearing a mask? Why is there no mention of COVID? You know, like the number of movies, you can count on fingers of one hand the number of movies that have been made since 2020 that have any relation to the real world. And, um, and, 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 and so I really wanted to put that in a song and put how I felt about the internet and what's happened to it since, you know, the glory days of the dial-up period, which yeah. is like when, for me, when it was at its peak, you know, for me, like dial-up internet was the best, you know. <laughs> Um, the best things happened on the dial-up internet. Well, um, we, were, we were very conscious of how many minutes you were, were on the phone, weren't you? Because it used to sort of yes. know, run up your phone bill a bit. So um, everyone had to be very smart and quick and think, oh, my God, I was five minutes. Oh, I was ten minutes on, on the internet. And then suddenly quickly ran. Not like suddenly it's like, no, you can just be on there all day. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. People just don't you won't get anything it. more done. You won't get anything more done. You won't be no. any less frustrated, but you can spend all day at it. <laughs> I know, it's very strange, isn't it? Did you just on that point, you know, yeah. with your, all your life, did you watch the film The Chills made on, on you know, Martin's life and his kind of ups and downs and his addiction? Yeah. And yes. 
how did how yeah. did that feel? Did you were there parallels? Oh. I know with Martin, he, I think he was a bit surprised when he heard what the other members of the band had felt about some of the situations that he thought. Oh, yeah, yeah, I don't want to have that made, movie made about me. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> I thought I thought it was hilarious. Like I thought, you know, because I know Martin pretty well and I know his sense of humour, and I could see that this is a funny movie. And I don't know if many people, I don't know if everyone saw that, but to people who People who know Martin and have been around and that's a funny movie, you know, that's that's that really represents, you know, his his humor. And um uh and yeah, I mean, God, the tell all movie about me, yeah. He, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it will be I mean, you know, if all goes well, such a thing will be done at some stage, I suppose. But yeah. yeah. It would be it would be slightly interesting, won't it? Really, yeah. It's, it's quite it's quite curious when you you hear what other people's feelings are when it's kind of not being sort of yeah when it's just honest really. So look, yeah. So you've got this kind of what you you're bringing out an album. You've got some tracks, and then the album is kind of due out. I suppose early next year now. No, I think we can get it out by the end of the month. I'm hoping um, it's going to be released on CD by um, Power Tool Records. The outfit that put out songs for Emily Valentine and um, yeah, you, um, how come you didn't go with Fish Rider? Um, because Ian's kind of like maxed out with the whole vinyl thing, you know, the whole the whole vinyl thing and the um and the um and he has plans to re-release some of the puddle records on some of the puddle CDs oh. on vinyl, um and. He's he's kind of um, a little bit over the whole record company thing, but he's still he's still you know he's he's turned it down a little bit. He's turned down the volume a little bit. So I, and also we're not in Dunedin. We're not there kind of with them. So it all kind of it makes sense to me. Like I don't. Yeah, keep it. Keep it. You know, keep I certainly it don't. Yeah, you know, I I, to I totally understand. I understand. It's like you know I understand anyone's reasons for doing or not doing stuff with us. You know that's it's all quite. It's not mysterious, yeah. <laughs> and so, <laughs> I mean, if you were able to to sort of ask or tell yourself, you know, your sixteen year old self, some words of wisdom, is is there anything in particular that you would have whispered in their ear, even if they would have ignored you? You would have thought, okay, yeah, but that's still great advice, or that's a great idea. I would stick with that. I would say, like, stop eating shit. You know, eat properly when you can. You know, if you get a chance to eat a steak, eat it. You know, don't. You know that kind of thing. That's that's kind of advice any young person should get, um, and because then you're going to be like remain more aware of whether you're actually enjoying or not enjoying any drugs that you take. Right. You know, if you're kind of if you if, if you're properly fed, if you're just like living on bread while you're doing it, you're going to lose sight of you know um, where your hedonic values lie. You know, it's like you don't need to be. Everybody loves warmth, right? No one wants to be freezing cold, no. but, but very few people burn to death. And you don't need willpower not to burn to death. You need a, a functioning sense of hot and cold. And if you lose your sense of hot and cold, people who lose their sense of hot and cold can burn to death. Um, and that's kind of um, what it's been like for me since I kind of sorted my life out. Basically, nutritionally, I've kind of developed this awareness of what I like and what I don't like that was very confused before. 
or you know like when I feel good and when when I don't feel good and what I should do about it that was kind of like quite confused by all the drugs and all the you know the way I lived before it was um a kind of like addiction is about doing things you've stopped enjoying you know if you're still enjoying something I don't think you're going to be an addict I think you just going to a good thing <laughs> but when you stop enjoying it and you have to keep doing it you know because it's an obsession or compulsion whatever um you have a problem and um yeah um so I give myself bad advice and um and probably wouldn't take it and um what other advice would I give myself just be uh, like look after your friends you know like take a little bit of time to study yeah you know just study your friends don't just take them for granted that'd be part of it yeah yeah no, wise, wise words. I know this is this is what it comes down to: good nutrition, but good gut bacteria. That's what we're all yeah. about. We love. We suddenly get aware of these kind of things that are. Yeah, like, you know, and we didn't we didn't know that when we were young about the gut bacteria. But you know who did? Um, Aldous Huxley. Every single Aldous Huxley book has a reference to probiotics in it. Right. Really, it's in like in quite kind of like. Oh, he's thinking about in the way modern people think about it. You know, he's like he's onto this thing before everyone else. It's really fascinating. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll drop that into the next conversation. Actually, yeah, no, we're all suddenly into yeah sauerkraut. You know, good good fermented <laughs> foods. That's what we're all into. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Look, George, well, thank you ever so much for this. If you want, I can always send you the link, and you can always put it on your oh whatever. Yes, please. Facebook page. Um, but I yeah, certainly thanks, will. thanks ever so much for this. This has been amazing. And look at that. Oh, oh thanks, Davis. God, it's great. Been, um, it's quarter past seven. I might have to go and have a coffee and go on to twelve. Yeah, but look, thank course. you again, and look, all the best with the album, and do keep in touch. Yay! Thank you, David. Thank you very much. Have a good evening. Take care. Bye. You too. Have a good day. Bye. <laughs> yeah. Bye. I'm getting up. Hello there. Oh, goodbye there. Um, yes, and that, dear listener, is the end of the show. Sorry about some of the quality. It was all right, but um, obviously not perfect. But um, great to speak to George and find out more about his life in music. Um, a massive thank you for that. So, yes, a little bit sort of creaky. And also my mic seemed to be a bit sort of low. You probably gathered anyway. Um, he does most of the talk and I just say the same old stuff. Anyway, look, massive thanks again. This has been David Eastall, the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, all these have been archived. Yes, they have on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Check them out. They're great. They're free. Just enjoy them. And uh, look, as I said at the start, I was going to play you a track by the band. This is going to be titled I Don't, I Don't Need the Light to See the Way. This is um, on an EP which is coming out called The Last Days of the Internet by the New Existentialists. This is George Henderson. Enjoy. Have a great week. 